RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. On Reality Check Radio, I'd like to welcome yeah, a special guest, a man who has had a big influence on our country. And uh, he's been speaking up recently as well. You may have seen a Herald article in which he was giving his uh, or opining on the state of things. And basically he was saying nothing has been done for 20 years. And that is Sir Roger Douglas. Sir Roger, welcome to our radio station. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for making the time. Uh, my pleasure. All right. A bit of history first, and then we'll get to the problems we have and, and how we can sort of work through them into the future. It's over 40 years ago, um, you know, since 84 and those changes that you and your team sort of um, brought in and changed the country, it's fair to say. And I don't think many people argue that, you know, the, the status quo at the time uh, could continue. So something had to give. It's been quite a time now. It's a long way back in the rearview mirror. What are your thoughts looking back over that span of time to what you were involved in? And you were younger than I am now when you were doing that, which is uh, pretty amazing. Uh, what are your feelings about that all these years on? Well, if I, I would say that reform essentially stopped after 1984. You, you had Ruth Richardson make some changes uh, in 90 and 91, but after that, uh, we've gone backwards rather than forwards. Mm. And we have four political parties who are more interested uh, in their own continuation in power or winning power than they are in helping the country. So you weren't thinking like that back then? You weren't thinking of your own political survival? Well, I think uh, anything but. I think, uh, in fact, if you look at that 1984 government uh, and look over the last 60 years, they were the only government that actually came, said, we intend to do what we believe is right. And you could ask you whether we were right or not, but we did what we felt was in the interest of the country. And it may well be uh, that as a result of doing that, we would lose uh, power. In fact, we had two historians in that cabinet, Jonathan Hunt and Michael Bassett, and I think both of them uh, felt that we uh, would lose as a result of some of the changes we were making. Uh, but nevertheless, they and all the rest of the cabinet uh, wanted to, A, uh, finish the job, uh, that we started. Yeah, so you would have um, encountered plenty of resistance back then. So far back, I'm you know having trouble remembering the, the, the sort of the clear detail. But you were coming in and what facing a culture that had been set in a particular way for a long period of time, right? Absolutely, uh, and um, I really, in a sense, uh, where we are today. Um, started back then or we were I wanted to go further uh, but David Longy um, did not want to do that uh, I wanted to introduce choice and competition into the social welfare area and I discussed that with David a number of times uh, but he was adamantly opposed to doing that and without his support, um, I was uh, 
I understood that it just wasn't going to occur. If you look at my book, Toward Prosperity, uh, you'll see there in the last chapter ends in me that where I wanted to go or where I wanted to start to reform the welfare sector, but he wasn't having it, uh, so it didn't happen. The result of that was when I left Parliament uh, in 1990, I kept on thinking about it and I formed ACT with the sole purpose of starting the reform of health, super, uh, housing and those sort of areas. And if you look today, if you look today, um, you know, what's that, another 25 years on, yeah. 30 years on, those issues which uh, we raise at that point of time um, are still there. They're the problems that we're facing. They're the problem, especially health and super, that uh, our Treasury is saying are going to uh, put us into substantial deficit uh, and debt. And, and no one uh, is talking about how we should solve that problem. In fact, um, most of the political party, in fact, all the political parties, would be opposed to doing uh, what I, for one, uh, believe we need to do and what I've been saying we need to do since the 1980s. Um, so, and we're going to get into that. I'm just curious, why was David Longy so adamant uh, against, you know, the next phase of what you're thinking about? Uh, uh, essentially, um, he was concerned that if we allowed um, the private sector to some extent and others to come into the welfare area, say, for example, health, and we created competition there, um, that even if we improved efficiency in education and health, a National Party could come along and deny his constituents uh, access to education and health. I always thought that was a nonsense because if you introduce policies and they work, uh, then people are not going to oppose them. Hmm. And then he, he quit. So, <laughs> Well, he did subsequent when I went back into Cabinet. But, you know, we had uh, debates on it. Uh, they were, but in the end of the day, um, David tried to push ahead with a welfare system that was never going to work. And, and he took education, of course, uh, that's right. under his own wing in order to demonstrate what could be done, but it never happened. And when all those changes occurred and you saw how New Zealand was emerging subsequent to that, were you, were you satisfied that it was kind of working the way you, albeit with oh, I complete? Think in, I think in the economic area, um, things uh, panned out pretty much uh, as I would have expected. But to be but half the job was left undone. Uh, the welfare system was still taking uh, a huge amount of money. And it wasn't particularly efficient. 
if you look at education delay, you look at um, health, uh, they're all in trouble. So, uh, and I raised those issues as far back as 1987. I raised it in uh, unfinished business, um, or, or should I say, um, uh, toward prosperity, uh, and pointed out that uh, in both the area of education and health, uh, things needed to change. But David wasn't going to have that. Okay, so here we are now. I take it the the welfare burden hasn't lessened, right? I mean, it's got oh, it's got worse. Got worse. <laughs> how much? How much worse do you think? Oh, well, as Treasury point out, the cost of health, education, and superannuation over the next forty years, and will happen gradually over that, is going to increase by 8.1% of GDP. And essentially that's going to send the country into a huge deficit uh, and the debt is going to climb dramatically. Does that take into account us doing better and earning more? Uh, Well, that's a good question, actually. (laughs) I could take you back. Um, it, 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 it does predict some improvement, but not growth at the rate that you would need to cover um, that um, deficit that we're going to face. Right. It, so it, It's interesting yep. that you should say that because one of the big questions was when we introduced ACT, uh, we were going to have a superannuation scheme and we're going to have individual health accounts, et cetera. And one of the people who was opposed to that quite a bit was Roger Kerr. And Roger's argument essentially was if we do the right policy, uh, we'll have growth and therefore we'll be able to afford to pay um, you know, for the health and education in any case. Yeah, but uh, look what's happened in the last few well, years. Well, of course, and that was the whole point. If uh, it, if you didn't get that spectacular growth, you're going to end up in trouble. And even then, it was predictable that um, it was predictable that the population, the retired population, was going to grow dramatically, so that the cost per person um, of providing welfare uh, was going to increase dramatically. And there's nothing fair. What we have been doing is uh, robbing the young. And so each generation robs the young and puts a a greater burden on them. Yeah. So why do you think politicians, I mean, what you did was like standout uh, back in the day. Compared to recent times, it seems that politicians are incredibly timid. They, they they don't really take on anything. What's happened to politicians in the time that you were there till now that that sees them so risk is risk averse? The right. Well, um, yeah, I don't think it's just being risk averse. They don't want to give up power. If you think about it, I mean, in the eighties, we gave up power. That was one of the things that we did. 
We removed privilege, which was basically was very important, but we also removed power. We got rid of having a minister of railway, got rid of having a, a minister of electricity, a minister of postmaster general, etc. Uh, so we gave up some of that power. But the politicians today do not give up, want to give up uh, power. If they allow choice and competition into the health or pension sector, um, they'd, be, they'd, they'd feel they were left without a job. I'd say that would be a good thing. <laughs> okay, so it's as simple as that. Well, I think it's, it's all about power. Hmm. Well, I mean, hmm. um, if, you, if, if you think about it, um, they want to be popular. Let's take John Key. John Key was the person more than anyone else who polled, and he used to poll to find out people, what people wanted, what they just didn't want, and then he his policy was related to the polling, and he would offer people, oh, they want cycleway, well, we'll give them cycleways, et cetera. It wasn't necessarily what was good for the country. And if you think about, if you want to help people, you tell them the truth. And, and they can you handle it, You want to help right? yourself. Hmm? And people can handle the truth, can't they, normally? Of course they can. Of course they can. They, they handle the truth every day. Yeah. They handle it because they have to decide where they spend their money, and that makes them face lots of truth. But... If you want to help people, you tell them the truth. If you want to help yourself, and this is what politicians continually do, you tell them what they want to hear. Not necessarily, you know, they want to be told that everything's rosy or this and that, but that doesn't actually help. No, well, people know in their own lives uh, approximately how things are anyway. Oh, well, people have got a lot of common sense, uh, and, and they, you know, they... They make those choices, and uh, it's interesting you mentioned. It's interesting you mentioned John Key because, out of any politician that I can think of in recent times, he was steeped in business, right? He he knew business, and surely that understanding of business and how to make a dollar. Um, I mean, he suspended that. Obviously, is well. You know, if if I look back in sixty years of politics, um, John Key, in some ways. Um, had a magic that uh, no one else, people liked him. Uh, he walked into a room, he, 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 he could determine or where people were, uh, et cetera, but he didn't want to make any hard decisions. He did not want, uh, he wanted to be loved. And, uh, you know, I gave a speech, I remember, in Palmerston North, I uh, was at, um, I think it was Wrightson's, uh, and they'd been having the odd beer before. And so I thought, oh, the heck with this. So I talked about politicians I knew, and, and we had no Muldoon and Longy and, uh, and John Key. And what I say about John Key, of all these politicians, John Key is, is in a position where he's able to do things that other politicians. He's got so many credits in the bank, the political bank, but his 
big problem is he refuses to use them. And one day he's going to wake up and they're all gone. And that's the thing about policy. The only thing that's certain is you're going to lose. So you should use that, that that credit while it's available, right? The, yeah, uh, absolutely. The capital. And he had it more than anyone else probably. Well, I mean, Muldoon had it for a while. Long he had it. Um, those three, you know, stand out in some way. <clears throat> Can I ask you about Muldoon now that you mentioned him? Because I remember him as a young man and 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 how dominating, you know, across everything he was. And uh, some loved him. A lot of people in the end, you know, ended up sort of disliking him as as a character. What will history say about Robert Muldoon, do you think? It won't be great, I don't think. Uh, um, it will, he'll suffer a, a lot from that period, uh, 1980 to through to 84, where he believed that he was the only one who could make any sensible decisions. And he ran against the tide. Uh, and he had price controls, interest rate control, all of the things that were never going to work. And and so I, I think that will, in the end, impact on his image more than anything else and will dominate uh, some of the other things. And the Think Big projects also were, uh, won't help him either. Right. Yeah, because some people look back with rose-tinted spectacles on those days, like Think Big was in and, you know, it was a kind of, ahead of its time, investment in the infrastructure of New Zealand to make it self-sufficient and all. It didn't turn out that way, is that what you say? No, I don't believe it did. And, uh, hmm. you know, I, I, I quite like the guy in a, in a funny way, but he never gave an inch, but uh, he was a, a true politician. I remember when I um, was a backbencher and I got up in the estimate supply and, and said, his estimates were going to be wrong. Uh, and he got up and he said, oh, member of Manukau, he's been here long. When he, he a bit was here a bit longer, he might understand. So I did. I got up. It was uh, the, um, and again, and sort of repeated. And he said, oh, there he goes again. <laughs> Doesn't understand if he comes and sees me, I'll explain it to him. So I waited, and I rang him <laughs> and uh, his office, and I didn't hear back, and then I rang again, and I guess he felt it. So I went up in the end, he said, he, and, and, you know, he sat down there, and he never gave an inch. Uh, he didn't tell me any answers, but he wasn't. I thought, oh, we'll relax, and we'll, you know, but not, not Muldoon, he you know, he played the game to the end. Right. Fascinating. I quite like that, aren't you? Well, he was like, a character. There's no yeah, question about that, yeah. right? Um, okay, so here we are now. There's, If you listen to the news, there's a cost of living crisis. I went and bought eggs yesterday. They're now at, um, it was $11 for a dozen, which um, sort of blew me away. There's just a, a, an on-the-street report from of where things are. And... You know, we've suffered uh, quite a shock over the last few years to our national income, particularly with tourism and all that. Uh, and, you know, that that inaction that you've been talking about over such a long period of time since you were there changing things. So how do you assess our current situation? And then I want to ask you what we have to do 
you're talking about those treasury um, forecasts, and you might want to go through a few of those again if, if if you feel like you want to. How do we how do we fix things, and how do we set it on a you know a long term um, trajectory for success? And so we don't we don't saddle the future generations with you know with our problems and debt because that's really unfair to do that. Oh, it's totally unfair. Uh, it's it's criminal in some ways uh, to do that. You're doing it not only to your grandchildren, or in my case, you're doing it to children as yet unborn. Yeah. And um, uh, look, we're in, in deep trouble because what we're seeing, uh, what we're seeing is uh, a real blowout in our welfare uh, costs. And we're seeing the number of taxpayers who are paying that, levelling off. And so we're, the prediction forward is that some, give me just one figure maybe if I can, oh, don't worry. Uh, but you, mm-hmm. you're going to see um, health and um, super, the cost per worker, go up five or six times over the next uh, 40 years, and they just can't afford it. We're going to see a deficit of our fiscal deficit go from where it is now, zero to 13.3% of GDP, according to Treasury. We're going to see debt go out to $3 billion. Well, it's not going to happen. I mean, because we would be uh, in broke, essentially. We would be where other countries, Italy, been, uh, Turkey, and a number of countries, uh, Greece, uh, for example. And uh, so it's not going to happen. So we're going to have to take steps to avoid that. And Treasury indicated some of the steps they thought we were going to have to take. And what they were saying would be necessary to put up all personal taxes, all all of the brackets, we would um, need to uh, put up the age of retirement. We would need to move the way we adjust uh, the um, retirement uh, pension, move it away from wages uh, to a situation where it's on cost of living. And what they're saying, if we do that, then the amount paid to people in retirement will fall from about 65% of the average wage down to 45%. So people are going to get hemp, and even then, we're probably not going to break even. So we need to change, and we need to change dramatically. So you've got politicians who want to do what the people want through you know, mechanisms of polling and all of that. Faced with that, so someone's going to have to sort of like you did in '84, maybe, is really sort of um, man up or woman up and and do it and 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 take the hit. Well, I, yeah. Well, we're going to take a bigger hit if we don't do it. Yeah, that's the first thing that we need to realise. And the sooner we start to do it. Uh, the better off we'll be. And and just let's remind ourselves of one or two things. Had 
1972 super scheme, which I've been part, partly or mainly responsible of the Labour government, still been in practice for people today would be retiring with well over a million dollars. Wow. Most people are retiring with nothing that have over a million dollars. Even and and so we need to make go back to where people are able and we've got to make put them in a position where they're able to save for their own retirement. And we need also the other change which I've been pushing for is to have choice and competition within health and super in particular, uh, and as a result of that, improve productivity and allow people to make their own decisions and choices. What about education? Because um, every sort of metric there shows that, you know, it's not performing too well. and. And and it's sort of going sliding backwards on the on the world, you know, measures, competition and education as well. Absolutely. Well, I mean, competition, choice, and competition are just as important in the government, in government as it is in the private sector. Just imagine what um, uh, our groceries would look like if there was only one company and every other company was banned. Hmm. That's essentially what we have, isn't it? What other business, I mean, if you look at uh, education, the politician tells you as a parent where you can send your children. Now, you can escape if you're rich, but otherwise the government says, thou shalt send your child to the closest school. Yeah. And it's the same in health. Why have we got cute? Because the because the politician is telling you when you can have your operation, whether you can have an operation. Well, not many people are getting them t- in a timely no. way anyway. Now, it's disgraceful. Okay, so let's say you were you were the person again. Um, what? How would you? <clears throat> How would you start on this and, and and sort of a time frame that you would have to at least get the the, the basic foundations of it in place as we're reinventing ourselves again, I guess? Um, well, you how- could get the foundations in place quite quickly. The, the real issue is that particularly in the area of superannuation, it would take 35 years to get to the point where you'd completely solve the problem. Well, that's still in the time frame of, of not settling our kids too much. Yeah. Well, and uh, well, of course, uh, even from year one, it would be better. Yeah. Um, but let me tell you broadly, the first thing which I believe you have to do is you have to move away from a, uh, from a pay-as-you-go welfare system Uh to a system which is based on individual savings. And, and that uh, is, is quite a big move. But if we stay with the pay as you go, then you're going to seek huge cuts in benefits, particularly the retirement benefit, which Treasury are recommending, and you're going to see um, increases 
uh, in personal corporate tax and, uh, and, and probably capital tax gains taxes as well. So in order to be able to make that switch, <clears throat> what we have to do is to create that savings model. Now, that's quite expensive. People will need to save around 6000 during their working life, 18, I'd say up to 68 because, you know, in 20 or 30 years' time, we're probably living longer, push the age of retirement out. But so that's a 50-year period. I use 50 years. Because, and so people would be saving that, and with the accumulated interest, they'd be, all be retiring in dollars of the day with about three three uh, million dollars, which would enable them to buy a pension and have a million dollars or more for health care. Now, the big issue is how do we get that money so everyone can save? Yeah. Uh, and what we have to do, in my view, is get is is essentially did do what I did in the eighties. We've got to get rid of privilege. If you think of the 80s, we got rid of privilege. That's essentially what we did. We got rid of high import, import licensing, got rid of so many of these things which were costed. So we've got to get rid of privilege. There are three areas, four areas where one of them's not privilege, the fourth area. Three areas, we need to do something about government. I mean, it's, and, and I'm talking here about some, some people in government get paid more than they would in the private sector, but there are too many people in government. Um, if you look at the, the number of new people employed, what are half of them doing? Uh, and so... PR and spin, Sir Roger, and mm -hmm. uh, PR. Yeah, well, exactly. Communications and, and policy development. Well, you know, some some of it's all right, but most of it's not. So that's one area. Second area, you get rid of privilege in terms of business. Business get various tax breaks. Uh, they get grants and things of that nature which uh, can add up. Forestry, for example, is just one area. Uh, then there's individual privileges that go to high-income earners. Uh, the, one of the ones there would be the interest-free loan uh, to university students. The majority of students who go to university come from wealthy families. Uh, and then there is, of course, the, the amount of money which is put aside already for for super, uh, which if we use for the new uh, approach would also uh, provide a fair amount of uh, uh, money. Now, so you've got four areas. You've got reform of government. You've got getting rid of the privileges that go to business, getting rid of the privileges that go to high-income earners, and using the $60 billion we have in the super fund, uh, the income from that to, to help uh, people able to save. 
So essentially what I'd do then is take that money and ensure that everyone's got the $6,000 a year. I had Winston Peters on this program a few weeks ago, and I asked him, you know, how do we improve the country's position? And he seemed to be quite um, keen on incentivizing business, particularly um, export businesses. And I know he's said that for a long time. And that, that he said that the government shouldn't be um, scared of picking winners. Should we be identifying areas in our economy? Well, in tell, our, me, our tell me one winner that the government picked. I don't know. One winner that Winston picked back in the late 70s. Well, Look, I think he used, he used forestry as an example. You just mentioned it and said, you know, every bit of um, forestry should should go off um, the wharves value added and not just, you know, raw logs. He gave that as an example. Well, okay. So what he is saying is that the government should take more taxes from you and they should determine how to spend it rather than allow you to spend your own money. And it hasn't worked in the past and it wouldn't work uh, in the future. Why should it? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, but someone's going to have to pay for it. Let, let's say Winston. Winston, he got, we've got short memories. We got, a, he talked the Labor Party into giving him 1,000, was it one, 1 billion, wasn't it? Yeah, 1, 1 billion, billion sorry. Yeah, for the one provincial billion. growth fund. 1 billion, right. Tell me, please, what good came of that? Because someone had to pay for that. You and I and everyone else had to pay taxes in order to give Winston a billion dollars to give to his friends or other people. I don't know where it went. It's a nonsense. It's the Labour Party in power at the moment. What, what are you, again, measuring it off against your history um, with that party and what you did in the 80s? Where is that political party now, do you think? Oh, they're a different party than what we were um, in the 70s or 80s. When I went in the 70s, it was um, the essential support of the party came from working New Zealanders, you know, people in the pubs and elsewhere. They generally voted Labour. Um, but that's changed. It's now the teachers. Uh, it's a sort of university lecturers and and elite, uh, and that was a change that took place uh, in the Labour Party. Uh, it it became a party more of intellectual people who came out of university, went and worked for an MP for a while, and then became an MP. And I don't think it's done the Labour Party a heck of a lot of good, to be honest. How did that happen? I'm presuming that the the more contemporary um, uh, Labour supporters came from backgrounds that, you know, you're talking about from the old days. What happened there? Is it just the fact of, of going to universities and not really having much of an expansive life? 
Well, in some ways, and they became university politicians. But let's face it, it's not surprising. They probably came from families. Uh, maybe their parents had the one thing that the parents wanted was for their children to be, to go to university and be educated. But the Labor Party uh, moved. Well, let's take let's take one of the issues: superannuation. In when I introduced a private members bill in 1972, so that everyone could have super, the Labor Caucus was a hundred percent behind it. When Helen Clark decided to, uh, along with Michael Cohen, to have uh, a super fund in 2000, they didn't want individual New Zealanders to save it in their name. They wanted it in one big fund because I went to the caucus when Michael Cullen came round to tell the ACT caucus about it. And I said, Michael, why don't you put this money into individual accounts? And he said, well, that might happen one day, but it's not what we want to do. In other words, they wanted to control the money. And, and it's got a lot worse uh, since then. Let, one example. Um, when National were in power, in 2010, they reduced taxes. Eight years later, they decided that, or six years later, that they really should reduce taxes. It was an elect ploy as well. And they came out with new tax rate. When the government, when the Labor government won, the first thing they did, they didn't want you as individuals, to have that money so you could spend it. They wanted it, so they cancelled it. So the two or three extra billion dollars that was going to cost to give you tax relief, they had and they spent to spend. And the, what they have done, when they spend it, they spend it in a way to try to make you dependent. The Labor Party hold themselves out as being compassionate. I'm talking about the modern. The reality is that they're a party that aims to lock you into dependency because if they they give the money in a way where you come to depend on it and that also becomes the deadliest tax of all because you a lot of people get say support for housing, so they the rents are too high or more, and the government gives them money uh, to help. But the problem is when you get a pay rise, not only do you pay thirty cents in tax, you pay another forty cents uh, the cost of the reduction in support you get for housing. And so they're creating um, a situation where you, a lot of people become dependent on them. And you know why they do it? Because they think if you're dependent, you'll vote for them. I was gonna now, I'm not saying the National Party are any better. Uh, yeah. They're more, just more likely to give it to farmers. Yeah, but that's not, the, that's not what, what government should be about, is no. it? Uh, I mean, it's not. It's not just to lock in your your great job and your own personal circumstances. You've you, you've got to be doing it 
for different reasons. I mean, when when you were doing what you were doing back in 84, were you thinking about those people in the pub, you know, the average Kiwi? Were you well, doing I, what I was thinking about um, was making New Zealand a better place. Uh, how could I get New Zealand out of the economic mess that they were in and and how could we move them forward? I was always conscious, though, of how the policies would impact on the poorest, and we always made allowance for that. For example, when I introduced GST uh, and lowered um, personal tax rates significantly, I made sure that those on low income were compensated fully for the GST, plus had another $15 or $20 in their pocket. So that was deliberate uh, to ensure that the poorest uh, were looked after. Now there doesn't seem to be, and I think you've sort of alluded to this, much of a um, a point of difference between any of the parties. There's the radical parties, no. you know, about them. But, they, yeah, yeah. They all want to take your money and they want to spend it because they really, in a way, uh, they don't trust you. But you, people do not know how much that, that's costing them. I, I made the point that we would save 6100 and that would be indexed to inflation, wage inflation. After that, when they retired that 50 years, they would retire with $3 million. Half of, and the, $2 million of that would be needed if, or come back because they've got options, but for the super and the other million dollars they'd have for their health and care during their retirement. Everyone, everyone would have that. Um, but do you know how much a person on the average wage pays in tax today? Tell me. $14,000. The average wage is about 70000 They pay 14000 in tax. Another point you need to remember is personal income tax in the 1970s paid for health, for super, and for education. 30 years later, it only pays for health and super, $42 billion. Because of the cost of health and super has gone up, it now only pays for both. But let's take that $14,000. If, if, if that person on that average wage could save that 14000 for that the time they were in the workforce, which is on average 45, 50 years, they wouldn't be retiring with 3,000. They'd be retiring with about 8 million, I think, instead of the three I talked about. They'd be able to have double the pension and a couple of million for health care. Why don't we do it? Because the politicians don't want you to have that. But you think about it. They say how caring they are, but they have, in fact, um, created a situation 
where half of the tax they pay, I would give them the similar pension that they get today anyway. And wow. they could have the other half for themselves. Yeah, to go overseas and do whatever they want. And and you'd have options, I think. I mean, some people would probably prefer just to live on the interest they could earn and, and retain their capital. Mm. Uh, options which aren't available at the moment. That has to be sold. And again, you've been through this. That all has to be sold to a public that's uh, or, or an electorate. It's quite difficult. Yeah, quite who, difficult. who's used to having it a particular way for so long. And they probably feel insecure because of that dependency kind of mindset that you that you talked about before. Well, it's so, interesting. Oh, sorry. No, no, but to, to let that go, even though, you know, as you argue, it's it's in their better interest, let's say. Um, if if they don't want that, then it ain't going to happen, right? Well, that's true. But, uh, you know, you could uh, create a situation, uh, and I've always said this, where a person could have a choice. They could stay on the present system or they could have the new one. Can you imagine anyone... Uh, wanting to stay on the present system when they could have uh, a capital sum that's uh, double uh, what 6000 would give them, you know? Yeah, I guess it'd become pretty obvious that, that who's winning. <laughs> ah, well, there you are. It, it's funny, you know, you should say about selling. I remember <clears throat> when um, I set up at and... Um, uh, you know, the policies are much the same as I'm talking about today. And I gave it to a couple of people, but one person in particular who was a PR person, someone I respected a lot, and to read it and tell me. He came back to me and he said, Roger, I've got good news for you and bad news. Oh, yeah, well, what do you want first? I said, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. But he said, the good news is, you can sell this to anybody, anybody, you know, you can sell it to anyone. He says the bad news is you need two hours. And, need, and, so, and that, say that again, you need two, two, two hours. Two hours, In other yeah, words, right. you need, okay. It's yeah. going to take, a, you know, and uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, uh, it's a good point, actually. Yeah, very good point. He made a... Uh, and you everybody's know, I, everybody's used to hearing things in bite sizes now. If you can't yeah. get it oh, out absolutely. In, in two minutes, you know, you, the journalist saying, "Well, can't come on, hurry up, hurry up," you know, it's the, and they're in there, and and no one gets to sort of. And, and people don't read the same. No, they read headlines. Yeah. Boy, well, I big, don't know quite what the answer is. I'm not a PR man. No, you, you must have learned a few things though. <laughs> oh, a few. <laughs> well, I did. I. Uh, I, Bevan Burgess, who was my press officer, is the best I've known in many ways. How, how long have we uh, – do we get into a situation where you get too deep in the hole that, you know, as a country that digging out is such a, a long, grinding process that it sort of becomes intergenerational where, where it's just not – We could know. do that. If we allow it to drift for another – uh, 15 to 20 years, we're almost going to be in that situation. At the moment, uh, we, we've got a fiscal situation where we're roughly in balance. 
I'll come back to that point because we're not roughly in balance, but uh, where the government is saying they're roughly in balance. And that situation will remain in that for the next 10 years. So we have that window. Then ten, in the next 10 years, it will get gradually worse, um, but still almost manageable, and then it's going to go over the cliff. Um, mm. And uh, so the urgency is take action now and we can look really good uh, because inside, in 35 years, a person would have enough money that all, after 35 years, everyone will retire with enough money to buy their own super pension. But the one thing which I've been on about ever ever since I formed Act is we say we've got a fiscal surplus or balance. We have it. What we don't take into account is the unfunded liabilities we have. And this is what you're saying about young people. If I work, what's happened is what there has been a commitment. There's a commitment. The government says to me while I'm working, you work and we'll provide in return you with a pension and health care when you retire. Now, the thing that happens, of course, I work, I pay my taxes, the 14000 whatever it is, and that's used to pay the pension for people who are on the pension today. But will that be the case in 30 or 40 years' time? They might, they might not need, be able to keep that deal. Well, they won't. And, and, and indicate, you think about it. In the private sector, if you, they had an arrangement like that, and if the private sector didn't put the money aside, they'd be end up in jail. The directors, <laughs> and they'd go to jail <laughs> because they breached the government law today. But the government doesn't put any money aside. They made these promises. They've entered into this agreement willingly, National and um, Labor jointly did it. Do you really think they're going to be there? Already um, Treasury's telling them to cut the pension by by a third. Was a there third. that politan? Well, third. it will be because it's 65, and if you do the two steps that Treasury is suggesting, extend the age and move to inflation-proofing rather than wage-proofing, the it'll go down from 65 to 45% of the average wage by 2045. Yeah. Speaking of acts, because pe people are looking for, and, and this is not a promotion for them, but it's, I think, you know, given you've set it up and uh, it, it's it's doing reasonably well polling-wise at the moment. Um, oh, who, Labour? No, no, what? no, ACT. Oh, yeah, oh, ACT, yeah. Uh, are you uh, still, are you, are you confident still that those principles that, that you set up with are still there and and that you know that there is an alternative there given that there doesn't it seems to be no, just a revolving I'm, door I'm, of the I'm, other two unfortunately i'm not now uh act moved away around 2000 from the saving principle 
But more recently, they've moved away um, from um, some of the other uh, principles that we had. Um, maybe, um, for, for example, they uh, one of the worst taxes we have is um, um, the tax uh, on... Um, uh, sorry. Um, right. We all pay. Sorry, pick that up again, Sir Roger. I was came in over the top. Oh, of I'm it. sorry. Uh, That's right. I'm. Uh, you go for it. Let me. Oh, it really comes in. The, the issue is about indexing tax threshold, and we haven't indexed any of the tax thresholds since 19, 2010, when that last adjustment for the last uh, 13 years, there's been no indexation of tax thresholds. And that means that someone on 48,000, for example, which was sort of around the average wage then, was paying 15.4% of their income in tax. Because we've had, let's say they've gone up to 70,000, uh, which is what they need to do because of inflation. But you know what they're paying now? They're paying 20 cents in the dollar on average. And that's actually, and that's on every dollar, including the 48. So that's an increase in tax of $3,500 or $70. So in order to stand still, they've got to earn, you know, about an extra 5000 or more in order to stand still. And ACT, which used to be opposed to that, has decided that they'll join the club. And the reason that the politicians like it, the politicians like to get that extra 3500 that that person is now paying, because they can spend it. And in the case of Labor and the Green, that means that they can make you dependent on them in the sense that you rely on the money they give back to you in housing or in family support uh, in order to be able to live. And act, actually, I can't understand why David did this, uh, is saying they'd take it and they'd reduce tax rates, but they'd only reduce it for the top 5% of income. Now, that's crazy. Hmm. Okay. Now, this this um, making people dependent on the government, I, I'm just just interested in that. Is that a willful political strategy, or is that do they think they're actually doing, doing good by that? Ah. Uh... No, I think it's willful. In the case, in the case of Labor and the Greens, I think it's absolutely willful uh, because they want to make you dependent, definitely, because then you'll vote for them. And it's so, as simple as that. It gives wow. them the power. If they give it back. Why? If they give it back to you. Um, and you don't have to, then maybe you won't vote for them. That's what it's all about, huh? <laughs> it's all about power. 
All about power. Well, I think that's a a good note to end this uh, talk on. It's been fascinating hearing you talk and to you know sort of lay out a, a model. It's all in the numbers, right? In the end, it's all in the numbers. It yes, and and it also goes a little beyond that. In that, I think if we're going to build a, a society that works, we want people to be able to manage their own lives, and I think that's important. Uh, and what we're saying, or what I'm saying, is that they should have the money in order to save for their own retirement, and they decide where they invest that. And in the case of health, that they do this, to, they do the same, and they make their own decisions uh, in conjunction with their their doctor, and uh, and they'd be better off for it. People grow. That surely that's what we want. We want create a society where people can look after themselves. And that's, the, that's the whole resilience thing, isn't it? It's about being resilient as a nation. You need you need to have that. absolutely. I think the worst thing you can do to another human being surely is to make them dependent on you. Yeah. So, Roger Douglas, thank you so much for giving us some time. Really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners found that really interesting. And, and all the best to you. How, how's, if you don't mind me asking, how's your health keeping? How are you doing? Oh, not too bad, actually. Uh, I mean, I'm 85, get close to 86. Uh, so, you know, um, I'm a bit slower than I used to be. And, all right. all and sometimes uh, probably an interview like this takes more out of me today than than it would have uh, 20 years ago. I was going to say all that stress um, uh, from that time. Was there a lot of stress? How, how did you deal with uh, – I'm not, not trying to string it out here. Um, when you're under that sort of uh, spotlight, you've, you've got almost the weight of the nation on your shoulders. You, you, you're, you're fundamentally changing things. I mean, you know, that's a lot to deal with. It is. Um, and one – one thing you need to do is you need to be believed that you're doing the right thing. Now, you you know, uh, that's for history to judge and, and time, but I always believe that I was doing the right thing and I wanted to do the right thing. I think the second thing that I had good people around me, I never asked anyone who came to my office, whether they were Labor, National, couldn't have cared less. All I wanted from them uh, was that they were capable of doing the job and wanted to do it. And I had some exceptionally talented people. Must have been quite a ride. <laughs> it was a good ride. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, but these things are... Uh, you get one chance and and it's important you do what you believe is is right and and we tried to make quality decisions I learned a lot during that period yeah, only quality decisions work yeah uh you need in order to make those decisions work you need quality people and you needed to know what your objectives were and you needed to package what you were offering uh, uh, together so that, you know, if if someone lost was on that particular post, they're likely to have won on the, the next one. 
Masterclass. Thank you, Sir Roger Douglas. Really appreciate the chat. All the best to you. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.